Welcome to the Neural Network, now podcast. I'm Nick. I'm a neuroscientist, neurophysiologist out at the Center for Integrated Brain Research at Seattle Children's. And so the Neural Network started as a live discussion series that we hosted every week where we brought together a community of people that were interested in neuroscience and physiology and health and wellness and fitness and lifestyle and philosophy. But the whole goal of it was to break down some of those barriers that comes with accessing academic information and figuring out how scientific studies are done in a place where you can propose any hypothesis that you have without fear of being completely rejected with the idea that you're interested in something. And so that was the whole premise of the Neural Network. And so for the first episode of the Neural Network podcast, I figured it was only appropriate to talk about the most important physiological system that we have in our body. And uh, when I say that, I'm, of course, talking about the respiratory system. And I say that unbiasedly just because this is the primary area that I do my research in. And so whenever we talk about breathing, breathing is implicated in a number of different physiological and psychological processes. And I think we can all agree that breathing is pretty important. Of course, we take our first breath shortly after birth. And for the most part, we keep breathing up until the time that we die. At least that's the, the overall goal. But it's worth taking a step back and figuring out why it is that we actually breathe and how it is that we actually breathe. And when there's an understanding of the basic information of those things, then you can start to put together the evidence that's been put out, uh, whether it's in the media or in academic studies, and you can make your own ideas and your own hypothesis into whether or not changing your breathing is going to have any effect on uh, your physiological physiological or neurological processes. So to start, I figured, you know, why is it that we actually breathe? Unlike worms, for example, you know, that can that can breathe through their skin or exchange oxygen and CO2 through the skin, with humans we actually have to bring air into our lungs. Uh, bring air into our body in order to get oxygen, and we have to breathe that air out in order to remove CO2. So every time that we take a breath in, uh, a bunch of air comes into the lungs and brings with it a fresh source of oxygen, and that oxygen is taken up into the blood where it can be used for different metabolic processes throughout the body. Metabolic processes produce CO2. CO2 gets dumped back into the blood. And then it can be exchanged into the air that's in the lungs. And when you take a breath out, then the CO2 can leave the lungs. And that's how we get rid of some of the CO2. And so that's, you know, the primary physiological basis of why we breathe. I think that's a pretty simple explanation. But there's a lot of different reasons why we breathe as well. We breathe for a lot of different behavioral reasons course. And so we breathe for things like emotional control, or at least we change our breath relative to our emotional state. So if we're anxious, we take fast, shallow breaths. If we're calm, we tend to take slower, deeper breaths. And we also breathe for, you know, some silly type of activities. We breathe to cool off our food. So we take in breath and we you know, breathe on our food in order to to cool it off. So even though that's something that may seem rather simple. It's a behavioral response that requires intimate control of our respiratory system. And of course, we breathe for vocalization, for talking. Every time we want to 
make a sound, we want to talk, we have to bring air into the lungs, and we have to control the rate at which it's leaving our lungs in order to vibrate our vocal folds or our larynx in order to create sound to actually talk. And so that's, I guess, in a nutshell, some of the the reasons why we actually behaviorally and physiologically take a breath. But what I really wanted to dive into was some of the mechanics into how it is that we actually breathe and how we create the signal that tells us to breathe. And the, the main three components of the respiratory system, I mean, there's a lot of different components to the respiratory system, but in general, we can kind of create three different categories. You have a controller, you have an effector, and you have a set of sensors. So the controller, which controls the signals that tell us when to actually take a breath and to tell us how we should take this breath, so like how big that breath should be, how fast we should take the air in, how fast we should take the air out. This is all information coming from the controller. And so the controller lives within the central nervous system, within our brain, primarily actually within our brainstem. And it's a series of neural circuits that their ultimate purpose is to create a signal that goes down to the muscles of respiration in order to allow us to breathe. The effectors are these these muscles of respiration, so our diaphragm, our abdominal muscles, our intercostal muscles, etc. And these receive the signal from the controller and they change their activity relative to what signal is coming in from the controller. So if the controller sends a signal to the effectors, or the diaphragm, for example, to take a breath, that signal is relayed to the diaphragm, the diaphragm contracts, it pulls down. When it pulls down, it expands the chest wall cavity that creates a negative pressure. And then that negative pressure pulls air uh, from outside of the body, inside of the lungs. And then, of course, uh, that only occurs if your mouth or your nose are open. If they're closed, then you just kind of suck your cheeks in, I guess. It looks kind of silly. And then uh, for expiration, of course, then this signal is terminated. And then um, gravity helps a lot to contract our chest wall back to the position that it was in before and which creates a force to push the air out. The third part are the sensors. And the sensors really work to fine-tune this respiratory control network. And so these sensors sense things like oxygen, and they sense things like CO2. Uh, Particularly, they sense CO2 largely through the formation of hydrogen um, because excess amounts of CO2, or not even excess amounts of CO2, I should say, but but CO2 within the body or CO2 within the blood uh, gets converted into hydrogen, which affects the acidity of the blood and the cerebrospinal fluid and things like that. And uh, that's what's picked up by some of these sensors as well as oxygen. So you have different sets of sensors that sense oxygen and they sense CO2. The primary sensors that sense the oxygen, at least that we're aware of, are called the carotid bodies. Um, And these are located within the carotid bifurcation or the bifurcation of the carotid artery. Uh, And so the carotid artery is that that large pulsing artery on the side of your neck. um, And it goes up to a point where it bifurcates. So it, it goes from one vessel and it splits to two. So it creates like a Y. And right in the middle of the Y is a specialized group of cells called the carotid bodies. Um, and they sense the, the oxygen. And so they're in, a, they're in a convenient location because it's coming pretty close to the blood that's leaving the heart. Um, and so it senses the amount of oxygen that's coming out 
and it relays the signal up into the controller. And if there's low amounts of oxygen, they send excess amounts of neural signals up into the brain to say, hey, dummy, you should probably take a breath. And when there's elevated levels of oxygen, uh, then they shut off. And so tells us that we don't need to take as much breaths as we used to. CO2, on the other hand, is primarily sensed centrally. So it's sensed within your brain and primarily your brainstem. And it's it's still kind of debated to this day where the primary site of of CO2 sensation occurs within the brain. And so there's there's a few different locations that have been implicated. Uh, the primary one is called the retrotrapezoid nucleus, the RTN. So the RTN is located, like I said, within the brainstem, and it, it contains a specialized group of cells that we call to be chemosensitive. And so they're sensitive to a chemical stimuli. And so that's what it stands for, chemochemical sensitive, sensitive. So they're sensitive to chemical stimuli. So like I said, the CO2 largely transmits its signal through the production of hydrogen. So CO2 combines with water to form carbonic acid. That carbonic acid then splits to bicarbonate and hydrogen. And that hydrogen molecule is picked up by the specialized group of cells um, within this region. And, and whenever they start to sense that there's increased levels of hydrogen or, or there's excess amounts of acidity, uh, let's say within the blood, uh, then they start to increase their rate of firing. And so, these, like I said, these are a group of neurons, and neurons, for the most part, um, they like to transmit signals through electrical activity. And we call these things, uh, when the cell starts to give out a signal, we say that it's firing, or it's firing off what's called an action potential, or this burst of electrical activity that then is transmitted down to the next neuron or neural network. And it creates this little Morse code-like signal that, that's transmitted throughout. And so when these cells start to sense that there is an increased level of hydrogen or an elevated level of CO2, they start to fire faster. So they start to go bang, 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 you know, really fast. And that is transmitted into the regions that control when we take a breath, which is a different region of the brainstem that we'll talk about. And so when that happens, it excites the region that tells us when we should take a breath, and it makes us take more breaths. And so it increases our respiration. And when we increase our respiration, we can breathe off an excess amount of CO2, and it can return our CO2 levels back to normal. So it's a beautiful little feedback system uh, that controls when we breathe and how much we breathe. There's another area um, that's also been implicated in central chemoreception, and that region is called the medullary raphe. The medullary raphe actually consists of a few different flavors of nuclei. So there's the there's something called the raphe obscurus, the raphe pallidus, the raphe magnus, and the dorsal raphe. Regardless of the names, though, um, the important thing about this is that the medullary raphe is located directly on the, the midline, or they're right in the center of your brainstem, and it's right near the ventral surface. Um, so it's sort of uh, located on the brainstem, right down the middle, kind of behind your throat, basically, uh, or I guess a little bit more rostral or towards your forehead, but you get the idea. I'm just trying to, to give an idea of where the ventral surface actually is. And this is actually the primary site of serotonin production. 
within the brain. And so the medullary raphe contain this high, uh, it contains a population of neurons that are primarily consistent of serotonin producing neurons. And so these neurons express a specific transcription factor. It's called tryptophan hydroxylase, which happens to be the uh, rate limiting enzyme in the production of serotonin. And so these neurons produce a lot of serotonin and they release serotonin to many different areas of the brain. And so when we talk about different brain regions, or excuse me, different functions that are related to serotonin, you know, this molecule that's sometimes purported to be the happiness molecule, and of course with antidepressants and stuff like that, a lot of times they target the serotonergic system by increasing the levels of serotonin in the brain. A lot of that has to do with the serotonin that's produced within the raphe nuclei. Just so happens that these neurons also tend to be exquisitely chemosensitive. In other words, they change their firing rate dependent on the amount of CO2 or hydrogen uh, that's floating around within the body, um, which is kind of interesting. And so anytime that these neurons pick up uh, or they sense that there is an elevated level of CO2 or hydrogen, they similarly increase their firing rate. So they start to create these little neural signals at a much faster rate than they used to. And that ends up resulting in an elevated release of serotonin throughout different regions of the brain. And one of those being the, the site that controls, again, how fast uh, and when we take our breaths. And so when that occurs, we start to breathe more. And again, we breathe out the CO2, we breathe out the hydrogen, and it brings those levels and the, the, the acidity within the body um, back to normal. So in, in, in a general sense, the sensors send the signal to the controller in order to modify the amount of breathing that's occurring uh, at any given time. So if we put it all together, you have a controller that sends a signal, tells us when to breathe, 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 breathe. We have a set of effectors, which actually change the uh, anatomy, or they change the way that the anatomy is arranged, such that we can actually bring air into our lungs, and then they go in reverse in order to expel that air out of the lungs. And then we have a set of sensors that pick up on the amount of CO2 and the amount of oxygen within our body in order to give us an insight into whether or not the amount that we're breathing is appropriate for the tasks that we're doing at any given time. So now what I, I wanted to talk about a little bit was the actual respiratory controller. Like I said, the, the series of neural circuits that creates these rhythmic electrical act electrical signals that are then transmitted down to the effectors in order to allow us to breathe. And the reason why it's important to understand some things about the controller is this is what actually from our brain tells us that we should breathe. And most of the time it's doing this without us ever even having to think about it, which is amazing because we don't always take for granted the fact that we can breathe and we can regulate our oxygen and our CO2 without actually having to think about it for the most part. You know, in certain diseases like uh, CCHS, central congenital hypoventilation syndrome, which has also been called Ondine's curse, um, this is a disease where uh, there's a lack of a certain transcription factor uh, in a certain group of neurons within the brain, and they lose primarily the ability to breathe autonomically. And so every time that they want to take a breath, they have to consciously recruit, just like if you want to make yourself breathe in and out. 
And so you can imagine that the, the lifespan on these patients, unfortunately, is very much uh, reduced. And oftentimes they have to, actually most of the time, they have to use a ventilator when they go to sleep because you know, when they go to sleep, then you're not thinking about whether or not you're, you're breathing. And so if they just went to sleep without having that ventilation system, uh, they're at an, a, a much elevated risk for forgetting to breathe, essentially. Um, and so that ventilator will actually breathe for them. And there's, of course, a whole host of things that goes on with uh, being on a ventilator long term that are not necessarily always good. So back to the actual controller itself. So the respiratory control system is oftentimes what we collectively term the controller. And it, like I said, it lives within the central nervous system. And it primarily lives within the brainstem as far as, as much of the evidence uh, has suggested. And it's responsible, like I said, for autonomic control of respiration or breathing when we don't necessarily have to think about breathing. So what happens is that the controller ultimately creates a rhythmic or an oscillatory signal that tells us when to take a breath. And so there's a group of cells, a group of neurons, uh, and which may include astrocytes and everything as well. But there's at, at the end of the day, there's a group of cells that create these large electrical signals that then get transmitted down to the phrenic nerve, which innervates the diaphragm. And so there's this big signal that says, hey, take a breath. It travels down this big cord, the phrenic nerve. It is picked up by the diaphragm and the different muscles of respiration. And it says, we need to take a breath. So the question is, is how does this group of neurons actually create the signal and how does it do it rhythmically? And how is it actually able to be flexible enough in order to increase and decrease our breathing? And of course, you know, the the answer to that is highly, highly debated. And it I'm not kidding, it gets very heated at many conferences when we start talking about what we call rhythmogenic mechanisms or how the mechanisms by which this neural network creates a rhythm, rhythmogenesis. And um, it's been highly debated for years, but there's a couple of primary hypotheses that have uh, come to be within the field, I guess you could say. And uh, it's, so it's important, I guess, first to say that the, this, this neural network of cells or, or of neurons within the brainstem that's primarily responsible for creating these rhythmic or these oscillatory signals that tell us when to breathe is collectively called the pre-Botzinger complex or the pre-Butzinger complex, I guess. It has an umlaut. I'm not really sure all the time at how to pronounce the umlaut, but that's what it's called. It was, uh, it was discovered in 91 by Jack Feldman's group, and it was named after the Botzinger wine, which word on the street is actually the wine is not exactly the best wine, but I guess this is the wine that they were drinking at the time that it was discovered, and uh, or I guess the time that it, the name was coined, so that's the name that I got. And it's a group of neurons that co constitute the, um, the minimal neural circuitry that's necessary in order to generate a signal to breathe. And so what I mean by that is that if you took away every part of the brain, you took away the cortex, you know, the entire cerebral cortex, you took away the midbrain, you took away the pons, you took away the, the cerebellum, and you just started cutting from your forehead down towards your neck. You could cut off everywhere up into the point of this pre-Botzinger complex, and your body would still continue to breathe as if 
none of those other areas are cut off. And in fact, in the laboratory setting, oftentimes we take the brain stems out if we're doing animal research, we take the brain stem out and we can put that brain stem in a dish and circulate cerebrospinal fluid over it. And we can record from this group of neurons. And even though there's no brain and there's no body left anymore, the only thing left is just this little cluster of neurons within the brain stem. It continues to fire these little electrical impulses telling the rest of the body to breathe, even though there's nothing left. And so it's kind of cool. So it, it's th that's why we say that it's the, the minimal neural circuitry that's necessary in order to generate the signal to breathe. And what's really fascinating about it, too, is that even though, like, like when you isolate the pre-Botzinger complex and you take that brainstem and you put it in a dish and it's still creating these oscillatory signals that's telling the rest of the body to breathe, even though there's no body anymore is that there's still complex breathing behavior that's conserved within those cells. So you take a brainstem out, you put it in a dish, you record its activity uh, in this the pre-Botzinger complex, and it's going bang, bang, bang. It's sending these electrical impulses that are, are supposed to tell the body to breathe, but it will also generate different behaviors. And so it'll actually, like for example, it will sigh. You know, when you go... <sighs> A sigh. So it will create its own size, even though there's no brain or anything to, to you know, to, to relate an emotional state to it. It'll also gasp. So if you give it some hypoxia, it will start gasping, just like if you're in a severe uh, time of low oxygen and you need to start to increase your respiration in order to resuscitate yourself, you'll start to get take gasps. So these big... <gasps> You know, if you expose that part of the brainstem to, to hypoxia or low oxygen, it will produce a gasping-like pattern. And so it's kind of wild that it will create all of these different complex respiratory behaviors, despite the fact that there's no input from any other parts of the brain, which just goes to show how, how important some of these seemingly ignored behaviors can be to the overall structure and function of, you know, this, this intrinsically oscillating network. Great. Okay. So a little bit of a tangent there, but anyways, um, the pre-Botzinger complex is, like I said, the minimal circuitry that's necessary in order to generate a signal to breathe. So how does it actually generate the signal? And there's really been primarily two hypotheses that have been put forward. The first um, is called the pacemaker hypothesis. And the idea here was that there's some sort of subset of cells, subpopulation of cells, or neurons, I should say, that are within the pre-Botzinger complex that contain an intrinsically, an intrinsic ability to burst. And so I guess first of all, we have to separate what is the difference between a burst and a neural spike or an action potential. So when we take a neuron, right, a neuron, like I said, creates these little electrical signals. And we call these electrical signals action potentials, or sometimes it's synonymous with spike. So if we say that the neuron is spiking, that means that it's flipped its little light switch on, it goes bang, little pop, and it sends a little electrical discharge. So that's a single action potential or a single spike. And so if we say that a neuron is tonically spiking, if we record the activity from that neuron, it's just going pop, 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 pop. It's just sending these little spikes, just this little train of spikes. 
Conversely, if we say that a neuron has created a burst, this is a, in a very short duration, it sends this large, uh, or uh, it sends a large number of spikes in a very short duration. So instead of pop, 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 it goes zing, right? And so that's what is largely the difference between a neuronal burst and a single neuronal spike. And then if we extrapolate that out into the entire neural network, now we're looking at the activity of all of the neurons within that region. When we say that the region has a population-wide burst, that means the majority or all of the, the neurons within this region all sent a burst, so they all went zing at the exact same time. And so this is a population-wide burst. And so the pacemaker hypothesis was, was born out of the idea that there's a subset of cells within this network that contain the intrinsic ability to burst. And so if, that means that if I went in and I grabbed this neuron and I pulled it out of the network and I studied it by itself, this lonely little neuron that I took out and I put it in a dish, that it will create this rhythmic oscillation of bursts. It'll go zing, zing, zing at a similar rate that we would normally take our breaths at. And so we could say that this neuron is sort of setting the pace for this neural network in order to recruit the rest of the body to breathe. And so if this little guy is setting the pace, every time that it sends a little a burst, it recruits or it innervates the rest of the neurons within the region to follow suit with its pattern. And so it's pacemaking or it's setting the pace of the rest of the network activity. And this net, or this hypothesis came to be because when you do look at the, the network and you take this entire network of neurons, so basically just all of these different interconnected neurons that are all interconnected with one another, and you isolate all of their connections from one another. And so now you've taken this highly interconnected network, you've severed all of the connections between one another, and so now this reveals the underlying activity of each one of those cells when they're not being influenced by, by the other cells. It turns out that a very small population of these neurons retain the ability to create their own bursts. And so that was largely what made the hypothesis that there were intrinsically bursting cells within the network that may be driving the ability of the network to create these large bursts to recruit the respiratory muscles. Now, of course, there's certain caveats with this hypothesis, of course, um, just as there's caveats with any hypothesis. Um, and I can tell you firsthand that one of the, the most frustrating things about testing this hypothesis, because I've tested this hypothesis myself within the lab, is trying to find these pacemaker neurons. So these pacemaker neurons, are, like I said, are the ones that intrinsically burst. And in order to find them, what you can do is you can take a brainstem out, take the brainstem out, you plop it in a dish, it stays alive as long as you're circulating cerebral spinal, like artificial cerebral spinal fluid over it that has enough oxygen, yada, yada. Um, and you, you, you take a pipette, um, which is just like this, this glass tube, almost like a coffee straw, and you, you heat it up in the middle and you pull it really fine so that way you have this tiny little needle. And... Then you go in and you find a single cell 
and you poke into it. And when you do that, then you can record the neuron's activity. And that's called patch clamping, which is a, a method of electrophysiology. Now, in order to figure out whether the cell is intrinsically bursting, like I said, you need to, you need to isolate it from all the other input. And we do that just by putting on a cocktail of drugs, which we call synaptic block. And it just consists of different, um, different receptor blockers. So whenever a neuron is trying to talk to another one, it typically talks to it through uh, receptors, oftentimes is what they're called. And when you block them, then it, the neurons can no longer talk to each other anymore. But the hard part is that, like I said, with the pacemaker hypothesis, when a small group of neurons send out these bursts, these zing, then they make the rest of the neurons form a burst. So the other neurons aren't necessarily bursting by themselves. They're just being told to burst by the pacemaker. So when you synaptically isolate all of the neurons from one another, then only a small number of them are actually bursting. But when you originally go in to record from a neuron, you're seeing its activity before it's isolated because you need to know whether or not this neuron is actually part of the network that's important for breathing. And unfortunately, the number of neurons that are intrinsically bursting is very small. And so most of the time, you spend an enormous amount of time poking around, or you're just basically going fishing in the brainstem with a needle to find a neuron. You finally find a neuron that looks like it has activity that's relatively synchronized with breathing. You get happy. You stick the, the needle into the cell. Or you, it's, you actually suck part of the membrane up. Uh, and break open the cell, but regardless, you basically just you record inside the cell, and then you stick on your synaptic block drugs, and the cell goes silent, or the cell just starts tonically spiking, just pop, pop, pop. So it wasn't a pacemaker neuron, and you go, okay, it's going to be a late night of patching once again. Because now you've synaptically isolated all the cells from one another. And so if you want to go try to find another cell, you have to go get a new brain. Because you have to know whether the cell was actually involved in respiration in the first place before you isolated all the cells. And once you put the drug on there, all the cells are isolated. So then you have to go back and get another brain, take it out, put it in a dish, get your little pipettes pulled again, and then start going fishing and poke around in the brainstem to find another neuron. And then you stick on the synaptic drug again. And then you put on the drugs and the same thing happens. And then you start to say things to your computer that might not be so PC, even though it's a PC. And that's, um, that's trying to find pacemakers. So I am grateful for the ones that found the pacemakers originally. And I am glad that that was not me that had to go and fish for them using little needles right now the other hypothesis which is gaining I, I should say is gaining the most traction in my own personal view I guess which is the the second hypothesis of how this neural network creates these rhythmic bursts and that's the group pacemaker hypothesis or sometimes called synchronization basically and the idea here is that 
within this neural network that creates the rhythmic bursts that are transmitted down to the diaphragm to make you breathe, there's different neuronal activities. And so some neurons are going zing, some neurons are tonically active, they just go pop, 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 and some neurons are just completely silent. They're just kind of sleeping, and they're just happy to be here. And so for the synchronization hypothesis, basically it assumes that the majority of the neurons have activity that's largely just tonically spiking. And I'm, I'm trying to, to simplify it, and so I apologize if someone that has come up with this hypothesis is listening and they're screaming at me right now. But, you know, it's the best way to explain it, I believe, in my view, is that you have these neurons that are just tonically spiking, pop, 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 pop. And the majority of these neurons are all, like I said, interconnected with one another. And so when one neuron pops, it's connected with another neuron. So then it excites or it signals to the other neuron to be active. And so one pops, it excites another neuron, it pops, and suddenly you create this avalanche-like activity where all of the neurons eventually start to pop together. And we call that, you know, the network is starting to become excited or the neuronal activity is starting to become excited. And when it finally hits a critical threshold, then the electrical signal becomes so big that instead of causing a pop, all the neurons send a burst. Zing. Okay. And when all of the neurons send a, a, a burst, it's this zing of activity, then afterwards they all have to go into a period of what's called refraction where they have to essentially recharge before they can send another spike. And so when you do this, you start to create a cycle where the neurons start to pop, they excite each other, turns into a zing, they all go silent together, and then the pattern restarts. And so you can create this rhythmic pattern of synchronization. And there's some some new studies uh, coming out by um, Jack Feldman's group and, and one of his postdocs, Sufi, that's looking at, I believe it's Sufi, um, that's looking at different mechanisms of synchronization among the neurons. And uh, so that's, I guess, the the hypothesis that's somewhat leading the way currently in the research setting. And so, you know, in all likelihood, perhaps it's a bit of a mixture of, of both hypotheses. Under certain conditions, then you have some sort of intrinsic oscillatory activity that might be dominating in other activities, you probably have some group pacemaker hypothesis or group pacemaker activity occurring. And um, because that's just kind of how it works with a lot of scientific topics is that a lot of these things are, are state dependent. And that's actually what a lot of my research is focusing on is figuring out how the network works under different states. Um, because to assume that all of the neurons are being active in a certain way when you're sleeping versus when you just got done running a marathon uh, versus when they're doped up on Adderall or you're being suppressed by opioids um, is somewhat naive. And so trying to, to understand how a network works under different states uh, can give us a, a large insight into how it's going to respond to further perturbations. You know, if we give it another drug, uh, and also just under uh, 
you know, give us give us insight into how dynamic the network actually is and how much flexibility does it have. Okay, so how is it that we actually study the controller or the respiratory control network? I talked a little bit about going brain fishing with little glass needles, um, but there's in reality, there's a lot of different ways in order to study the respiratory control network. And it's important to note, though, that what you find, like the information that you find out about the network is almost completely dependent on the tools that you're using to measure it. Okay. So so basically, this extends to the majority of scientific fields, and it's something to be extremely aware of when you're trying to uncover scientific information and you're trying to understand and implement different scientific information into your life is that it's important to figure out what tools were used to actually measure it and what those tools can actually give you a measurement of. So if we're taking, like I said, that electrical activity, if we're just purely measuring the electrical activity of the cells and how many times that they're spiking, when we start to make implications into how this affects our consciousness or how this affects other things throughout the brain, it's important to go back and remember, if all we're measuring is the neuronal spiking, we can certainly create hypotheses into how it might control other aspects of our mind and our body and stuff like that, but it's extrapolated from this neuronal spike activity. And so it's just something to be aware of when you're looking at different studies and what the implications of the studies and the interpretations of those studies are is to figure out what was actually used to measure it. Okay. So in order to study the controller, uh, there's a few different decisions that we have to make. And some of that comes down to whatever preparation it is that we want to use in order to study it, because we can create a lot of different preparations to study it. In general, um, there's there's three main approaches, I guess you could say. Um, these are called in vitro approaches, in vivo approaches, and in silico approaches. So in, in vitro approaches, which literally means in glass, um, this is an isolated preparation where we take the cells out of the brain or we take the brain out of the body and we put it in a dish or on a dish and we study it externalized from the rest of the body. And so if we, like I said, when we were studying uh, pacemaker neurons or if we want to study how the neural network operates without being influenced by the other sensors or the other portions of the body, uh, that are always feeding back into it. And we want to understand the basic properties as to how this thing actually generates a rhythm and how these neurons actually behave before we plop it into the more complex brain. We use isolated in vitro preparations. And so that's the beauty of the in vitro preparation. It gives you an idea into the, the fundamental properties of the network. However, of course, the downfall is that you don't have the rest of the body. And so how it behaves in a dish may not actually be how it behaves in real life when it's actually in the rest of the body. In vivo, on the other hand, is the entire animal or human. So in vivo um, is when you're studying breathing from the context of everything is relatively intact. 
and of course the 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 major pro to studying in vivo conditions is that's actually breathing. It's we don't have to make a guess as to how this neuron like activity contributes to breathing. We're literally seeing how that neuron activity relates to the animal actually breathing. Um, the downside of in vivo sometimes is that if you want to look at some mechanistic insights into how single cells within this network combine to work together, it becomes a little bit more difficult because you have to do it in a living, breathing animal. And when you're doing it in a living, breathing animal, things are pulsing, things are moving, things are much more dynamic. Um, there's a lot of compensation in things that occur. And so when you try to affect one aspect of the brain, the brain comes and says, ha I have another mechanism that can compensate for it. And so sometimes it makes it a little bit more difficult to make conclusions from the data mechanistically. However, Sometimes that's important, and sometimes we could argue that it's more important because if we take a brain and we put it in a dish and we give it a drug and it shuts off, that's one thing. But if we have that brain inside of the whole animal or inside of a body and we give the same drug and nothing happens, well, then in my view, it's not a negative study. It's actually more interesting because now we understand that there's there's safeguarding mechanisms within the brain that prevent you from being shut down from a single drug, and that's kind of interesting. And that's one of the things that we we studied, actually. We use goats um, for studies looking at opioids and how opioids worked within uh, the respiratory control network. And we were looking at um, a phenomenon known as interdependence among neuromodulators. And so this idea basically is the idea that the action of a single neurotransmitter, so whether it be norepinephrine or whether it be serotonin or dopamine or glutamate or GABA or glycine or substance P or something like that, the action of a single neuron can be compensated for, or the the action of a single neurotransmitter rather, can be a it can be compensated for by the action of another. So say that we take our primary excitatory neurotransmitter. So typically when we put glutamate on a cell or when a cell releases glutamate to signal to another cell, um, it increases the activity of the following cell. So if a single neuron releases glutamate, it gets sprinkled onto another neuron. The head neuron picks up the glutamate, it gets excited, and then it goes pop. Uh, our primary, one of the primary inhibitory neurons or in, inhibitory neurotransmitters, that being GABA or glycine, whatever, um, when these bind to different neurons, they have largely the opposite effect. And so if a neuron is going pop, 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 uh, it gets GABA or glycine sprinkled on it, then it stops going pop, 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 or it goes pop, pop, pop much slower. Um, and so the interdependence among neuromodulators shows that the activity within a network is very de- dependent or very much able to be compensated depending on what combination of neurotransmitters are being released at any one time. And so if you block the action of glutamate, you would reduce the excitation that comes from glutamate. And so everything that was going pop is going pop slower, but you can compensate that 
for that by, let's say, reducing the amount of inhibitory or GABA or glycine that's being released in the same network on the same neuron. And so the net effect of you originally reduce the excitation, the neuron starts popping slower, but then you reduce the amount of inhibition or, or let's say GABA onto that neuron, which would then speed it back up. The net effect is nothing, right? And so what we were finding with, with the goats as we were taking these goats and we were doing brain surgery on them and we put little dialysis tubes um, down into the brainstem. And so what you could do is you could deliver drugs directly into the respiratory control network. And the reason we use dialysis is that you could, you could deliver the drugs without changing the volume uh, within, within the, the, the cavity, the brainstem cavity. And that's important because if you start expanding the volume within the cavity, that creates pressure on the brain. And that's not good. So basically you have these goats. They had little brain implants on the back of their head by their brainstem with these little tubes sticking out. You can stick dialysis probes down into them, dialyze drugs. And we would give a certain drug and the effect that we thought was going to happen didn't happen. So then we started sampling the neurotransmitters that were within that neural network of the respiratory control system. And that's what we were finding was the interdependence among neuromodulators. And so when we tried to block a single neuromodulator, it was compensated for something else. Um, and that's that's what we found. Whereas in the isolated or the in vitro system, that doesn't happen as much. Not to say that it can't happen, it just seems to happen much less. So there's something about putting the brain back into the body that makes it a bit more resilient um, to a given drug. Now, that being said, goats can be a little bit of an oddball um, as they are a very resilient animal in general. But nonetheless, uh, goats with brain implants can give us a, a large insight into some of the basic mechanisms that are actually occurring within the, the respiratory control network and, and keeping us alive. Right, so the, um, the in vitro respiratory network, um, like I said, to, to dive a little bit into each of the preparation, the in vitro is in a dish, you study individual cells, and so you can do things like uh, patch clamping, like I talked about, which is brain fishing with a, a little glass electrode, um, <clears throat> and you can, you can go into the cell and you can test for how it creates its electrical pops. Um, you can look at whether there's different receptors on each neuron and you can figure out which receptors it has and what it's responsive to and how these different neurons uh, respond to stimuli by themselves. You can figure out what kind of cells they are, etc. Uh, the next level up, I guess you could say you have a network analysis. Um, and this is where your, or you could say a population-wide analysis. So instead of looking at the activity of a single neuron, you're actually looking at the activity of multiple neurons at the same time. And so we can similarly, we can take the same glass straw and instead of pulling the tip so fine, we just pull it less fine or we just break off the tip to make it a little bit bigger. And we just put this tube over the, the neural network or, or onto the, the group of cells and we just look at the overall group activity. And so if there's nothing... If none of the cells are synchronizing up and it's just this random popping that's occurring, then it just kind of looks like random activity. 
Um, but with the respiratory network where a lot of these cells, the majority of these cells synchronize up to cause these, these bursts, these zings, when you actually do this network recording, there's these big waves of activity every time that the brain is telling you to take a breath. So it's like this whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And it's really cool the first time that you do it in a lab. It's, you know, you, you, uh, at least for me, like I started, I worked on goats and I made environmental chambers for goats to live in where we could change the gas that they were breathing. And we had brain implants in the goats. And, you know, so we're used to wrangling goats and putting them in, in stanchions and drawing blood and having it try to headbutt you. And then it also being your best friend because they're goats. So they're super nice. And then suddenly now I'm studying mice and, you know, I'm, I'm told to take a brainstem out and put it in a dish and put this microscopic, basically, little glass straw on top of it, and let's see what happens. And I thought, this is quite a change um, of pace. But then all of a sudden, when I did it, um, you know, we have the volume up, so you can actually listen to the cells, and you put it under here, and it starts crackling. It's like, and then suddenly, this population-wide burst is whoosh comes through and you go, holy shit, what was that? And it's the brain stem actually telling, you know, sending out a signal to say, hey, we're, we're trying to breathe. And then another one comes and you go, whoosh, and you go, whoa, what the fuck? Like, this is really cool. Uh, anyways, that's, that's my uh, impression of it. So if anyone ever has the urge to record isolated brain stems make sure you turn the volume up and it will change the entire experience it it really makes it if even though it is alive i guess it just it makes it feel more alive if that's the case i don't know so the way i like to look at it is basically if all the cells are just like popping if all all the cells are just non-synchronized it's basically like you stick a a dish of popcorn in the microwave with with a cover over it and when all of the popcorn kernels are just popping randomly uh, you don't necessarily pick up a whole lot of things. Um, the acti- the general activity of the area is is increasing, you know, because the pop the kernels are popping, but um, it's it's not necessarily this one big event. Whereas uh, when you're recording a burst um, or this, z- you know, when all the neurons go zing at the same time, it's basically like if you put a dish of popcorn kernels in the microwave with a cover over it, and all of the popcorn kernels popped exactly at the same time. And so you can imagine the top would blow off and just bang. And you're like, wow, that's different. So that's a, that's a population recording. Uh, there's other ways of doing what we would call, I guess, network-wide analysis. You can use things like a multi-array electrode recording. And so in this case, you're basically taking that single-cell approach uh, that I was talking about earlier with patch clamping, and um, you put multiple probes together at the same time, and you just essentially go into a region of the brain. So you slap this thing down on top of the brain, and it has a bunch of little electrodes covered all over it, and then you can get the uh, individual activity of each cell, but you can do it over multiple cells at the same time. And so when when this technology came out you know it was you got like three to maybe eight cells 
at the same time that you were able to record from. And it was somewhat random, just luck of the draw when you slap this thing on, on top of the brain um, to see which cells that you can get. Um, but now with the implication of high density multi-electrode array recordings, there's these probes or these shish kebabs basically that you can you can put into the brain and on them is like over 380 or so uh, recording sites where it's highly sensitive to the electrical activity of the neuron. And so you can actually pick up the individual spikes that are occurring across hundreds of neurons at the same time. And the, the, the probe is so small that it does very, very, very minimal brain damage. And so it's really quite remarkable, the technology that's that's gone into the multi-array electrode recordings. And since the implementation of this, we've started to understand how multiple neurons actually uh, work together and how do they integrate themselves together and how do each of these individual spikes from each of the cells relate to one another. And are there larger patterns and, and background rhythms that are going on within the network that we may not know about? And and by measuring multiple neurons at the same time, we can also get an idea of how they, they fire relative to one another and, and how they actually synchronize together. So in general, you know, each in vitro technique um, gives us different information about the network and, and how it behaves with relatively minimal influence from the other areas within the brain and, and the body. In vivo, on the other hand, in vivo is a little bit of a different beast. Like I said, uh, in vivo involves the, the whole animal. And so whether it's anesthetized or whether awake. Now you can you can still use a lot of the techniques that you can use in vitro. So you can still patch clamp single neurons. You can still do population require uh, population recordings, and and you can still do multi electrode array recordings. Uh, for the most part, it's mainly during anesthesia, just because animals like to move. You know, some of the the multi electrode multi array electrode recordings tend to favor better. Uh, during the awake state versus a patch clamp, because uh, for patch clamping, like in order to to stay a hold of or keep a hold of a single cell, there's a lot of technological things that need to be implemented to pre- to prevent vibrations um, and and everything else because it's very easy because you're you're literally grabbing one cell that's microscopic and so it doesn't take much movement in order to to actually you know lose it. Whereas uh, with the multi-array electrode recordings, um, even if the probe moves around a little bit, there's different drift corrections, it's called. Um, Basically, there's different methods to track which neuron is which and whether it moves up or down the electrode, then you can can still keep track of, of each one. Now... The advantage of the whole animal, like I said, is that you're actually measuring breathing. You're actually seeing how air goes in, how air goes out, and if uh, you do something to the neural network uh, within the whole animal and the animal starts to breathe more, you can be relatively sure that that, that perturbation or that, that intervention that you're doing into the brainstem has an effect on breathing. 
You can also integrate the physiological aspects, the, the integrated physiological aspects of the, the animal. So you can get blood gases. So you can sample blood and you can get the blood gases, the oxygen, the CO2. Uh, you can test the acidity of the blood, the pH. So, so <clears throat> how well is the animal buffering the changes in acid that come along with the CO2 changes? You can get an idea into the hormones. Uh, you can also integrate the actual behavior of the animal. Now, of course, all these things are going to depend on the animal that you're recording from. Um, if you have a goat, for example, you can you can um, you can draw a lot of blood in the course of a study because the goats have a lot of blood, and so you can get a good idea of these different changes in blood gases over time. Whereas um, in a mouse, for example, you can't draw a lot of blood. In, in most cases, you can't really draw any blood, uh, at least in sufficient quantities to get accurate measurements of the oxygen and the CO two over time because it's going to take one or two blood draws and you're going to have all the blood that the mouse contains. And so that doesn't work very well. So being able to get the oxygen levels and the CO2 levels uh, and the pH and hormones and stuff from a mouse um, is going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, there's also, of course, behavioral differences, you know, between humans and mice and goats. And this is something that is underappreciated, I think, a little bit in the respiratory research, um, which is, you know, the, the main, re one of the reasons, I guess, you could say that we use goats, besides the fact that you could get a lot of blood and, and do different assays on different parts of the animal at the same time that you're measuring breathing, is that uh, how docile the animal is, is really going to, to affect how you study breathing. And so rodents, for example, like rodents are very good for studying the mechanistic insights into neuroscience because there's a lot of tools that are available in order to manipulate different areas of the brain. Uh, there's a lot of different readily available genetically genetic modifications um, within rodents being mice and rats that are useful to understand different aspects of neuroscience. On the flip side, mice and rodents and stuff uh, tend to be a little bit more weary, I guess you could say, of being handled. Um, you can certainly train them such that they're pretty comfortable with you grabbing them. But, but you know, when you when you still when you grab a mouse or you grab a, a rat and you go to measure its breathing, it's it's pretty worked up for a little while. So you grab the thing and you put it into you know you measure it. We measure breathing in rodents typically in a, a thing called a plethysmograph, which just measures the differences in pressure that occur within inside of a, a box. And so if you put the mouse into a box or you put the, the rat into a box, every time that it takes a breath in, the pressure in the box goes down. And when it takes a breath out, the pressure in the box goes up. And so you can you can measure the pressure deflections and that's representative of the, the breathing of the animal. Uh, but when you when you grab a mouse and it's dangling by his tail and you put it in the box, it's, it's pretty wound up for a little while. And um, same thing with if there's movement in the room or someone claps or, if, you know, you're giving a drug or something and then you have to reach back in again and grab the mouse. They're very much prey animals and they're very much ready to just flee and they get really worked up. And so it can create uh, a little bit of an issue when trying to interpret some of the, the, the ventilatory data because you can't get a good grasp on necessarily what the behavioral state of that animal is at any one time. 
Additionally, you know, if mice and mice and rats and stuff, they tend to groom um, and they tend to do a lot of sniffing. And so, for the similar reason, like you don't, it, for a similar reason that it's difficult to measure breathing on dogs, for example, is because they're they they're panting animal, and so they pant uh, if they're if they're too warm, or they pant if they're being have different emotional states. And of course, panting, all of a sudden, the the if you're studying breathing and the dog starts panting, it's like, well, is the is the drug that I'm studying having an effect on breathing, or is the dog just panting? So breathing is gonna like triple or quadruple just because it was warm you know of course um this becomes a little bit easier if you're studying humans because you can just tell the humans to breathe normally although uh even that is debated a lot because when you take it's pretty hard to get a human in a resting state in a laboratory setting like it's very difficult i know a lot of studies say that he's patients came in or these subjects came in and they were at rest and we gave them a 30 minute or an hour long uh, rest period and we measured their breathing. But you have to remember like you're going into a laboratory setting. Oftentimes you may or may not have been exposed to a laboratory setting in the past. There's a bunch of tools and stuff that you have no idea what looks like, no idea what they do, just scattered about. You're with someone that you may or may not have ever even met with before they hook you up with a mask on your face or they put you in a box to measure your breathing and they strap you all up. They sit you in this chair and they say, breathe normally. It's like, well, <laughs> you're kind of breathing normally. You're, uh, you're breathing restfully given that circumstance, but I guarantee you're not breathing the same when you're relaxing in your recliner as you are when you're sitting in a lab with a mask on your face. So it's worth taking you know, some of the implications with a grain of salt, knowing what the context of it was. Great. So there's, there's animal individualities when it comes to what you can and what you can't get from each of the different animal preparations. Of course, for us as humans, oftentimes we try to make the studies align such that they are bringing us the most information as a human species. And so the closer that we can get to humans, the, you know, the, the more readily translatable it is. But unfortunately, human studies are, of course, limited mechanistically. Uh, it's hard to take out a human brain, study it, uh, and put it back in. That doesn't work very well. So we often have to use different species. So that's, it is what it is. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, in vivo studies are the most translational. It's because when we're studying how we breathe, like I said, we want to understand how we actually breathe in the whole animal. And so when you study a whole animal or a whole human, uh, it's the closest to the actual intact state that we are at most of the time in silico, um, which I guess is the the last kind of preparation, and in silico certainly has different uh, people have different opinions on in silico networks. But basically, um, in, in silico preparation is a, a basically a model that's compute that's created on a computer. So it's a in the case of studying the respiratory network, this would be an artificial neural network, uh, or I guess an artificial neuronal network. 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the delineation between, I know there was a little bit of a war um, in the terminology or whether we call it neuro neuro networks or neuronal networks being whatever. I have no idea. So I'm just going to say that it's an artificial neuronal network because there's neurons that are artificially created and are put together in a network. And so basically we we can define the network and we can define the parameters that make up the network so we can di- dictate, you know, how many cells are within the network, how much are they connected, what is the strength of each of their connections, what kind of neurons are they, what kind of uh, receptors do each of these neurons have on them? In order, in other words, how do they respond to different input? And all of this is based on different biophysical properties um, that have been determined in order to understand how each of these inputs work. And there's a lot of standard models that have been created. And of course, all of these models are consistently being updated uh, with new information that's always being uh, found out from in vivo and in vitro studies. Uh, but it's that's something that's worth noting with the in silico networks is that the in silico network, the way that it's created at any given time is limited to, for the most part, it's with some exceptions, but it's limited to the information that we have understood about the fundamental properties that go into that network. And so for inputting different neurons, it's using the information that we already know about those neurons to figure out how it works with the rest of the things. But we only know what we can measure about neurons, for example. And so and so we don't know everything that there is to know about a neuron. And so when we feed that into a network, there's into an in silico network, there's some uh, properties that have to be assumed um, just because we we don't have the means by which to measure it. And so that's just something to keep in mind um, across all in silico neural networks. Now, that being said, in silico networks are immensely helpful and useful for understanding and understanding quickly different behaviors of the network based on uh, different properties. And so it's easy to change the connectivity of the neurons and it's easy to change and insert receptors and take out receptors. And you can get, uh, you can test hypotheses relatively quick. And if you notice something is very interesting, uh, then you can go in and test it. And similarly, you can take your hypotheses that you've created uh, by doing measurements in your different, either brain in a dish or brain in an animal. And if you think you understand how something works, you can test it in the in silico network and say, okay, we found that protein X, Y, and Z have this effect in this part of the brain in order to change our, our breathing, to make our breathing go faster. And you can go to the in silico network of the respiratory network and you can say, okay, if we increased protein X, Y, and Z in this artificial respiratory network, in silico, does the output increase? And if it does, then it doesn't prove your hypothesis, but it gives you a little bit more evidence to suggest that, you know what, based on the properties that we know about the network already, 
it's somewhat reasonable to assume that perhaps increasing protein X, Y, and Z could have this effect. So it's useful for making hypotheses and testing hypotheses. Okay, so we've been talking for a little over an hour already, I guess, um, about the the ins and outs of the respiratory control network and how we study it and the different ways that we have to study it. And so I think it would uh, be wise to to have a little part here where we talk about defining how we're going to actually study the network or how we're going to actually define a study to understand how the respiratory network works in different diseases. And, um, and so this, this involves the creation of different mod, like, uh, different disease models or different, uh, different models to study different things. And, uh, so for example, like if we want to study COPD, like we did in goats, we had to create a model of goats that represented some aspect of COPD. And so for those studies, what we were interested in was looking at what is the effect of elevated levels of CO2, uh, which happens in patients with severe COPD. They start to not breathe as well as they used to. And because they, they do that, they can't breathe out as much as they used to. So they start to retain CO2. So the CO2 in, the, in their blood and their body starts to go up. And we wanted to test in isolation, what was the, the effect of that CO2 in the absence of all the other effects of the disease? So what happens when a body is exposed to elevated levels of CO2 chronically or for a long time? We did 30 days. And so what we did is we built environmental chambers out of, out of basically plexiglass um, that the goats could live in. And we could adjust the amount of different gases within that chamber. And so we elevated the, the level of CO2 within the chamber. So, so we, we elevated it up to 6% CO2 within the atmosphere. So normally uh, within the atmosphere, there's 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen, and minimal amounts of CO2 and other gases. And so in our mixture... Uh, we had like 21-ish percent oxygen. We had 6% CO2, which I guess would make 27, which would leave 73% nitrogen-ish, somewhere around there. Um, and so when we did that, uh, since the goats are always breathing in CO2, uh, the amount of CO2 within their body went up. And so we can study what happens when a patient retains CO2 by increasing the amount of CO2 that the goats are breathing. And so what we were studying was looking at the effects on the brain of long-term exposure to CO2. And, you know, we, we were looking at what were the effects on the respiratory control network, and we saw that there was some um, remodeling, I guess you could say. There was an initial adaptation phase where you had a bunch of different changes in receptors in order to to compensate probably for the elevated level of input from the sensors uh, for a long time. Uh, and, and we also tested, you know, the, the sensitivity of the sensors, uh, which initially went down, uh, and then eventually came back, which was, which was kind of interesting. And, you know, one of the other interesting things that we found though, 
was that actually those serotonergic neurons, uh, those chemosensitive neurons, rather that we that that are found within the the midline of the brainstem, uh, the the chronic level of CO two actually killed off about fifty percent of them. You know, so about half of those serotonergic neurons were gone, and. We we looked into it a little bit to find a hypothesis, and, and one of the things that it led us to was, of course, uh, inflammation. Which neuroinflammation may not be all that surprising when when you're exposed to elevated levels of of CO two. But what we found was that there was elevated levels of neuroinflammation from the chronic CO two, and um, it may have been a causal mechanism to cause the death of the neurons because actually the the serotonergic neurons. The serotonin is produced from primarily from tryptophan, um, which you may have heard in the past. And this tryptophan, uh, depending on the the presence or absence of inflammation, primarily from specific uh, cytokine factors, can either be converted into tryptophan or it can be converted into a series of different neurotoxins. And so since the the inflammation was high, we hypothesized basically that um, the tryptophan was being preferentially con- uh, converted into these neurotoxins and it was killing off the cells. There's, there's more work that certainly needs to be done in that space, looking at intervening with some of the neuroinflammation that's produced in order to get a a mechanistic insight into whether or not that's actually the case but it was a a good start to show what some of the effects were and we also studied you know things uh how the the body over time when it's exposed to elevated levels of co2 changes its electrolyte balance so it has effects on your your body's sodium and potassium and things like that and um if you want to see the the detailed um, effects of of those studies you can look it up in in PubMed or uh, actually I, I like using Google Scholar it works pretty good it's like mechanisms of ventilatory and integrated physiological responses to chronic hypercapnia in goats I think I, I believe that's what it's called uh, if you if you if you look up all my studies or if you go to the neuronetwork.org uh, you can find a list of the studies that have been done, and you can look that up. Actually, you know, we we started studying cognition in goats as well, and uh, it started kind of as a, a bar bet at um, at a conference. My my PhD advisor and I uh, were were somewhere, and uh, we were talking about different studies that we could do with the hypercapnia, and one of the clinicians that uh, works very closely with us was saying that she noticed that um, a lot of the patients in the clinic, one of the first things that they noticed for patients that were retaining CO2 was that the cognitive ability of the patient started to fall. And it was kind of interesting. You looked into it and there were some studies that suggested that perhaps uh, when you retain elevated levels of CO2, that actually your overall cognitive ability starts to go down. You start to have a lapse in reasoning and you start to have a reduced short and long-term memory. You start to have reduced executive function. So your, your higher ability to, to understand things. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and we actually, you know, we had a model to isolate CO2 
which is rare because most of the models um, have concomitant reductions in oxygen and elevations in CO2. And so we wanted to know whether or not that the CO2 itself could have an effect on cognition. And so, like I, I said, it kind of started as this haha bar bet because uh, it was like, hey, you should study cognition in a goat if goats even have cognition to begin with. And uh, so I said, screw it. We have the model. Let's see what these goats can do, you know? Um, and so went to the, the goat chamber in the middle of the night after, I, I believe we were at a bar, as, as was usual or something like that. And um, what I did was I took some paper and I drew some shapes on the paper. I drew a circle and, a, and an X. I think I used an X and an O. Yeah, th- those were the ones that were used. And uh, I put the shapes up to the chamber wall, which was plexiglass, so it was clear. And I wanted to see if the goat would pick a shape. And the idea was that uh, if the goat picked the correct shape, so one one of the shapes was assigned as correct um, for the trial, and it was given the X and the O multiple times in, in random patterns. So either the X was on the left or on the right, and the O was on the left or the right. You get the idea. And one of the shapes was deemed as the correct shape. And if it picked the correct shape, it got a treat. And uh, luckily, goats like to eat, and so you can give them raisins or hay or nuts. Or um, One of the goats, actually, her preferred treat was paper towels. Um, so they do like paper towels. Uh, it was important to note, though, that she only liked brown paper towels. She would not eat the white paper towels. It had to be brown. So that's what happens when you try to study cognition in a goat. And so you you would hold up the shapes to uh, the chamber. One of them was deemed the correct shape, and sometimes we would change up which was the correct shape. And uh, when they stick their snout to the the shape, which, believe me, it takes a little while to get them to walk over and actually touch their snout to the plexiglass onto a shape. And I think the, the original reason that they try to do it is they try to smell whatever it is. But then all of a sudden you give them a treat and they go, whoa and then they do it again and you give them a treat and suddenly they learn you know if i stick my snout to the chamber wall to a shape one of these pieces of paper that this weird big-eared man is holding then i get a little treat and so they keep doing it but then eventually you start to implicate or you start to implement the rules of the game and so you you they stick their snout to the x you know and if it wasn't the x then they didn't get a treat um, and so they stick their nose to the paper originally on the X and then they go to the, the hole and suddenly you, give, you didn't give them a treat and they, you know, they looked at you like you just dishonored their entire lineage. Um, and then they get a little frustrated and then, you know, they would finally pick the other shape and get a treat. And it, it, you know, it's kind of funny because goats, I don't know if it's true or not, but goats, goats are kind of spiteful, I guess you could say. And so it was actually pretty funny to watch them get frustrated even though I know that sounds bad, but, um, you know, because at first it didn't matter which shape that they picked. And then suddenly you implemented the rules and it was just picking the paper and then it would go over and it wouldn't get a treat and it started to get mad and it would, you know, go back to the same shape and it would headbutt it this time and you still didn't get a treat. And then it was like, it just, it just got progressively worse. And then, you know, when you finally did assign, or, you know, when it finally figured that out, you know, figure it out, okay, it's not the X, it's actually the O that gets me the treat. Fine, you know, I'll play by your rules. 
then you would eventually switch it up, and this time it was the X instead of the O. And so it goes and it picks the O, gets a treat, picks the O, gets a treat. Or, excuse me, it picks the O and it doesn't get a treat. Then it was. It looks at you like, what the hell? You know, the O is what got me a treat yesterday. I picked the O and you didn't get me a treat. Where's my damn treat? And uh, so then it would headbutt it again and then it would, like, throw its whole body at it. Like, if, if it pushed it harder, then it would end up getting a treat. Uh, and finally, it would get so frustrated that it would just stick its head on the X. And then you would give it a treat and the thing would just, you know, looks like... I, it's hard to say that a goat wants to kill you, but I guess if you spend enough time staring at goats, you you kind of get the vibe and you get the you get an idea of their emotions, as silly as it sounds, but that's that's how it was. Yeah, that's how it goes in ghost models. But, but what we found essentially was that, interestingly, that when you elevated the levels of CO2 for a long time, uh, for, for up to 30 days, actually pretty quickly after you start the CO2, when they're exposed to the elevated levels of CO2, they start to get dumber really fast. And it actually their accuracy of picking the shapes, which which ironically, actually, the, the accuracy of them picking shapes when they were just living in room air uh, was upwards of like 90%. They were really good at getting the right shape for a treat. Um, but when you give them the CO2, suddenly it went down, it dropped down to about 50%. So it was just random chance whether or not they actually picked the right shape which was super fascinating. And then uh, in a subsequent study that was done by uh, a student uh, after myself, she was looking at uh, what happens when you return the goats back to room air after they've been exposed to the, the CO2 for a long time. And it turns out it actually, the cognition snaps back pretty fast. And so it's almost like the CO2 clouds the, the cognitive function of the goat as long as the CO2 is present, so as long as the CO2 is elevated in the blood and the cerebrospinal fluid, the um, the cognition goes down, and uh, when it goes away, then the cognition seems to come back right away. And so it's not necessarily completely, I guess at least within 30 days, creating some sort of long-lasting effect on cognition, but certainly within the 30 days, it is. So that's a little bit um, on that. The mechanism... As to how that works, we don't really know. Of course, we did find the inflammation. We found some other changes in receptors um, in different areas of the brain that are involved um, with that task. And so we did the, you know, like the anterior insular cortex, and we did different areas of the frontal cortex, and of course we did the hippocampus, and and we did some other other areas that were involved in that task. I'm sure. I, of course, we did the medial prefrontal cortex because that seems to be involved with everything that there is to be with humanity, um, lately. And, um, you know, there other reasons as to why it could, could have happened. You know, I think it would have been interesting to look at the cerebrovascular responses. So CO2 is a very potent vasodilator, very potent. And so when you originally give the CO2, Theoretically, the the blood vessels within the brain are just very much dilated, and I can imagine that this probably would create a little bit of a uncomfortable feeling. My, that's just my guess, um, because it would probably cause a little bit of of increase in fluid within the brain cavity, and especially you know if you feel this like pounding headache and you have this big pulsing, you know, 
uh, pulse, I guess you could say within, within your head, it doesn't necessarily feel the greatest. Um, and so certainly that could play a role, um, as well, perhaps giving you a, a clouded type of judgment, but you know, who knows? Uh, it's something that's worth looking into, I think in, in patience, um, certainly people with COPD, just because their lungs are fun, just because their lungs are, are failing. I don't think they should have to subject themselves to cognitive dysfunction. If we know that removing the CO2 can, um, can actually help them. It, it gets a little bit more complicated, of course, because in humans, sometimes they lose their, their, the ability of the sensors to pick up CO2 over a while. And it gets a little bit more complicated with how they sense oxygen over time as well. So I think it's a, it's a complicated issue, but it's something that's at least worth looking into. And it certainly ties together some of these higher order cognitive centers um, with the respiratory centers, which is a lot of the all the rage with breath work and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I think how about this, uh, I, I think we've been, we've been going for almost an hour and a half now, uh, which is like 45 minutes longer than I wanted to go, but Hey, you know, it's a kickoff episode. And so I think what we'll do is we'll split it up and we'll make another episode where we talk about some of the integrated responses, uh, within the, the control of breathing and higher order cognitive functions. And the reason why I want to save it for its own episode is a lot of that work is still in its novel frontier. It's still very much in its infancy to say the least. Um, I don't think as of right now, we have a whole lot of information other than anecdotal evidence, which look, I'm a big fan. If the, if the phenomenon exists, we just might not, understand the mechanism yet but if we if we notice a phenomenon and we don't have a mechanism for it it doesn't mean that it's wrong it just means that we have to to study it more um and i think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and observational studies and correlative type of information uh looking at how different breathing patterns whether we're doing you know slow breathing or fast breathing or square breathing or or anything like that how that actually has an effect on different cognitive uh, processes and our emotional regulation and things like that so I think what we can do is we can focus on that in the next episode um, and do a little bit more of an integrated breath work type of a type of episode to figure out how that kind of stuff works uh, because there's certainly some interesting implications there okay so Thank you for listening to the Neuro Network first episode. If you want to find out more or if you want to get a list of the episodes, join the live discussion, contact us. Uh, if you want to have any questions about neuroscience, physiology, anything like that, uh, feel free to drop us a line, www.theneuronetwork.org. Uh, also follow us on our uh, Instagram page, The Neuro Network. And um, yeah, so we will see you in the next episode. Bye.